I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we compare and contrast the words of scripture to try and gain a firmer grasp on what the Bible has to say. Well, the book of Leviticus is, as we've spoken at length, a handbook of worship that was given to Israel by Hashem to teach them and to teach us about the God that we serve. But more importantly than just how do we serve Him, this book addresses how to be in relationship with Him, how to be near Him. And if we're paying attention, that is what the opening portions of this book covered, the ways of relating to God so that humans could draw near And that's what the sacrifices that were described in the first seven chapters are all about. They're about drawing close to Hashem. Well, last week we saw this topic closed as the inauguration ceremony for the tabernacle was completed. And Moses and Aaron were for the first time since their tent had been erected. They were able to enter in and to begin the service of the tabernacle. But something happened. Something went wrong opening day and two men who were supposed to be in the service to Hashem ended up doing something to bring death upon themselves. What exactly that was, we aren't told, and I think that's just as well. If we had been told their exact crime, then we would point to that one thing and we would hold it as a higher offense than any other. Instead, the way that the story is told, it causes us to sit back and to consider all of the aspects of what it takes to approach Hashem. Not just the attitudes that one must have when it comes to worship, But for the next few weeks, we'll be discussing different status effects that will keep a person from drawing close to Hashem. And as we examine the specifics of these instructions recorded here regarding these status effects, we must understand that what is recorded is directly connected to the service that was accomplished in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. For the majority of these instructions, they're not applicable in any way today. There are some parts of them that we can still accomplish today. But we'll get to those in just a moment. Add to this that Leviticus seems to be made up of four primary thematic sections that go into the four primary aspects of worship. Section 1 is the sacrifices, which are covered in great detail in chapters 1 through 7, the attitudes that a person should have when approaching the God of the universe. And at the end of the section, we read of the priesthood and their service in the tabernacle in chapters 8 through 10, of these sacrifices being used to elevate the priesthood. The chapters provided the only narrative in the book of Leviticus, and the chapters 9 and 10, they serve as a break between the sacrifices and the next topic. The second topic being uncleanness, and this is the topic that we're going to be beginning today. Now, uncleanness is something that affects every human from time to time, and some of us it affects more than others. Uncleanness is completely unavoidable. 
but it's also something that cannot come before Hashem. Now for the next two lessons, we're going to speed up quite a bit. The three-year cycle had these chapters on uncleanness broken up into five different parshas, and that's way too many, in my humble opinion. Uncleanness is a very important topic for us to discuss because it teaches us about the differences between our nature and the nature of God. But without the tabernacle or the temple, these chapters, they lose a lot of their import for modern audiences. Because, for the most part, uncleanness only meant something when a person was intending to enter in before Hashem in the physical, the tabernacle, or the temple. Uncleanness is something that cannot exist in his physical presence, and so it must be understood and properly dealt with before anyone can come before him while still unclean. So rather than spending five weeks on something that we really can't do anything about, and that we really don't need to do anything about at this point in history, we're only going to spend two weeks on the topic of uncleanness. Now earlier, remember, I split out a Parsha that was a little bit longer into three Parshas. So this change will allow us to kind of get back on track for the three-year cycle. Well, as we move forward, we will, in chapter 16, come to the chapters on Yom Kippur, the yearly process of cleansing the entire tabernacle grounds of the uncleanness that was encroaching because of this natural uncleanness of the people. It's in this chapter that the topic will shift once again towards the third topic of Leviticus, this topic being the statuses of holiness and defilement. The sliding scale that runs from defiled to common to holy. Now, the scale is one that's on a completely different scale, a different measuring rod than the topic of uncleanness, and so it has to be dealt with separately, although there are some small areas of overlap, and we're going to see one of those today. Holiness itself is one of those topics that we think that we understand, but I'm not so sure that we do. So when we get there, we're going to be really exploring the idea of holiness and defilement in chapters 17 through 22. Interestingly enough, the last two chapters of that section also deal specifically with holiness among the priesthood and among the people. It's one of those separator or connective sections that I was talking about a few weeks ago. Then in chapter 23, with the discussion of the festivals, begins an exploration of communal worship of Israel, the final topic of Leviticus that will bring us to the end of this book. These four topics, sacrifice, clean and unclean, holiness and defilement, and communal worship comprise the entirety of Leviticus. So today, we begin part two of Leviticus, the clean and the unclean. What are they, and frankly, why should we care? So without further comment, let's open our Bibles and read chapters 11 and 12 of Leviticus. Leviticus 11 and 12. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the living creatures which you do eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatever has a split hoof completely divided, chewing the cud among the beasts that you do eat. Only these you do not eat among those that chew the cud, or those that have a split hoof. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not have a split hoof, it is unclean to you. And the rabbit, because it chews the cud, but does not have a split hoof, it is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not have a split hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, though it has a split hoof completely divided, yet does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. Their flesh you do not eat, and their carcasses you do not touch, they are unclean to you. These you do eat of all that are in the waters, 
any one that has fins and scales in the waters, in the seas, or in the rivers, that you do eat. But all that have not fins and scales in the seas and in the rivers, all that move in the waters, or any living being which is in the waters, they are an abomination to you. They are an abomination to you. Of their flesh you do not eat, and their carcasses you abominate. All that have not fins and scales in the waters are an abomination to you. And these you do abominate among the birds. They are not eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, and the vulture, and the black vulture, and the hawk, and the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, and the ostrich, and the night hawk, and the seagull, and the hawk after its kind, and the little owl, and the fisher owl, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the stork, and the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe, and the bat. All flying insects that creep on all fours is an abomination to you. Only these you do eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours. Those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap on the earth, these of them you do eat, the abrach locust after its kind, then the solum locust after its kind, and the chargo locust after its kind, and the chagav locust after its kind. But all the other flying insects which have four feet are an abomination to you and by these you are made unclean. Anyone touching the carcass of any of them is unclean until evening. And anyone picking up part of the carcass of any of them has to wash his garments and shall be unclean until evening. Every beast that has a split hoof not completely divided or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Anyone who touches their carcass is unclean. And whatever goes on its paws among all the creatures that go on all fours, those are unclean to you. Anyone who touches their carcass is unclean until evening. And he who picks up their carcass has to wash his garments and shall be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the creeping creatures that creep on the earth, the mole and the mouse and the tortoise after its kind, and the gecko and the land crocodile and the sand reptile and the sand lizard and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Anyone who touches them when they are dead becomes unclean until evening. And whatever any of them in its dead state falls upon becomes unclean whether it is in any wooden object or garment or skin or sack or any object in which work is done, it is put in water and it shall be unclean until evening, then it shall be clean. Any earthen vessel into which any of them falls, whatever is in it becomes unclean and you break it. Any of the food which might be eaten on which water comes becomes unclean and any drink which might be drunk from it becomes unclean. And on whatever any of their carcass falls becomes unclean. An oven or cooking range, it is broken down, they are unclean, and are unclean to you. But a fountain or a well, a collection of water is clean, but whatever touches their carcass is unclean. And when any of their carcass falls on any planting seed which is to be sown, it is clean. But when any water is put on the seed and any part of any such carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And when any of the beasts which are yours for food dies, he who touches its carcass becomes unclean until evening. And he who eats of its carcass has to wash his garments and shall be unclean until evening. And he who picks up its carcass has to wash his garments and shall be unclean until evening. And every swarming creature, the one that swarms on the earth, is an abomination. It is not eaten. Whatever crawls on its stomach, and whatever goes on all fours, and whatever has many feet among all swarming creatures, the ones swarming on the earth, these you do not eat, for they are an abomination. Do not make yourselves abominable with any swarming creature the ones swarming, and do not make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am Hashem your Elohim, and you shall be set apart, for I am set apart. And do not defile yourselves with any swarming creature, the one creeping on the earth. 
For I am Hashem who is bringing you up out of the land of Mitzrayim to be your Elohim, and ye shall be set apart, for I am set apart. This is the Torah of the beasts and the birds and every living being, the creeping creature in the waters, and of every being that swarms on the earth, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the living creature that is eaten and the living creature that is not eaten. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, When a woman has conceived and has given birth to a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her monthly separation she is unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin is circumcised, and she remains in the blood of her cleansing thirty-three days. She does not touch whatever is set apart, and she does not come into the set-apart place until the days of her cleansing are completed. But if she gives birth to a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her monthly separation. And she remains in the blood of her cleansing for sixty-six days. And when the days of her cleansing are completed for a son or for a daughter, she brings to the priest a lamb, a year old, as an ascending offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tent of appointment. And he shall bring it before Hashem and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the Torah of her who has given birth to a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as an ascending offering and the other as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. I'm willing to bet that if you are listening to the sound of my voice today, that you are at least passingly familiar with the food laws of Leviticus 11. I'm also willing to bet that the majority of you have had at least one time in your life where you've been forced to defend yourself as to why you won't eat certain things that in our culture are the backbone of many people's diets. Finally, I'm willing to bet that you have at one time or another run across a teacher that has posited an opinion as to why certain animals are clean and others are not. Something concise and poignant with a deeper principle that we should all learn from. Fortunately for all of you, I am not a betting man. Leviticus 11 has become the fodder of all sorts of Torah-observant ministries to focus on in various ways, because it's one of only three outwardly visible ways in which we differ from mainstream Christianity, those three ways being the Sabbath, the festival, and the food laws. And as I've waded through countless teachings on the subject over the years, I've realized one thing that is absolutely true. No one has been able to discern a reason for why some creatures are clean to eat and others are not in a one-size-fits-all solution to this conundrum. It doesn't exist. There are some that try to make the difference between herbivores and carnivores. Well, that's not true, because chickens will eat anything that you put in front of them, including bugs, lizards, and even each other. So that's completely out the window. Uh, there's also the fact that there are two identifiers for what is clean among fish and beasts, so there are ministries that make this list all about having two witnesses. But this view completely skips out on the birds and the insects and the creeping and swarming creatures which have no identifiers. You just have to know which is which. There are some who attempt to make this about health. The unclean animals carry disease and so we shouldn't eat them. Current events such as coronavirus, which is supposedly came from a bat, swine flu of 2008, or even the boy who died recently in Mongolia from bubonic plague after eating a gopher. They all seem to uphold this idea. And the case for this view makes a lot of sense. But but then cows carry many diseases that it can be transmitted to human as well. Whether that's bacterial infections such as E. coli or salmonella, anthrax or Q fever, a viral issue such as rabies, pseudocowpox, or vesticular stomatitis, otherwise known as hoof-and-mouth disease. 
Even parasites can be transmitted by cattle to humans, such as, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, Cyptos, Cyptosporidium and Garidius. I'm very sorry for butchering those so horribly. And then there's fungal infections, such as ringworm and the neurological disease called bovine sponge form encephalopathy, or BSE, which is the cause of Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease in humans. And that's just a small portion of the sicknesses that could be transferred from just one of the clean animals to humans. And so this particular viewpoint doesn't seem all that strong either. Now, there are many Christian scholars who make this list about ancient taboos that weren't really all that bad when we see them from a modern viewpoint. They'll explain that this list was something that ancient Hebrews connected to because of their own traditions, but that don't really apply today because we are not ancient Hebrews. And and there are many others. These attempts to define the underlying factors that define what can or cannot be eaten all fall a bit short, in my opinion. There doesn't seem to be a one-size-fits-all explanation. The fact is is that there are six categories of potential food being discussed, and each is approached in a completely different way. Now, the first two being the big ones that we're all familiar with, those being beasts and fish. And these two categories usually get the most attention when we go through this chapter. Why? Well, first of all, they're first, and we like to focus on things, the first things first, and then we can skip over things that go in the middle. But I also think it's because there were signs that were given to allow us to discern the edible from the inedible. For beasts, it's anything with a split hoof, and which also choose the cud. For fish, it's anything with both scales and fins. These pointers, they make it easy to determine what is clean and what is unclean. But the third category we run across is the birds. And for the birds, the instructions for what is edible, it's not as clear cut. It gets a bit dicier. Because with birds, we're simply given a list of birds that are unclean. But we are not told which birds are clean. We're given the exceptions in a list form and everything else is is clean. This means that the robin, the blue jay, the cardinal, the sparrow, they're all edible according to this list among many others. Animals that we normally would not consider as edible are, in fact, edible, according to this list. After birds comes insects, and in another shift of how we're told what is actually food, we find that when we get to insects, that this time, the exceptions are what is edible, and the remainder is inedible. This is a third way of identifying the food by calling out those things that can be eaten, unlike the birds, which called out the things which cannot be eaten. Now, if we're following the text here, we discover that there's a break that then occurs in the flow of the text to talk about the bodies of these animals. And from verse 25 to 28, we read that anyone who touches the carcass of any of these inedible, unclean animals will also become unclean. And we read also here that anything with a paw is not food. Then in verse 29, we read of the fifth classifications of animals. And this is one that's truly hard to parse because we don't classify animals in the same way that ancient peoples classified animals. What exactly is a creeping creature? We're given several examples, but discovering a connecting theme to these animals is difficult. The mole and the mouse, they're mammals. We would consider them different than the tortoise and the gecko and lizards, which are reptiles. 
perhaps uh, creeping creatures or creatures that live in holes in the ground. But then rabbits live in holes in the ground and they're classified under beasts. Perhaps it has to do with size, but there are lizards that are larger than rabbits. There are a dozen different ideas of how we can discern the thing that connects these animals and makes them creeping creatures. The plain fact of the matter is we just don't know. Add to this that we really don't know what some of these animals are. What you read in your English translation is a best guess of the translators. Even modern Hebrew speakers are not truly sure what some of the words used in this chapter are really referring to. And all of this makes identifying the exact animals a guessing game in a few cases. So this raises the question, if we could identify what makes a creature a creeping creature and differentiate these creatures from a beast, then are the rest of the creeping creatures edible? But the ones on the list are not, like with the birds. Now, that sure would open up a whole new realm of Hebrew delicacy if we could understand this chapter better, perhaps. But for the most part, it's not that difficult. Most of us manage just fine with what we do know, and so the rest is either not a social norm or not widely available and so not worth worrying over. Regardless of how we identify the animals that we are allowed to eat and the underlying reasons for Hashem choosing these animals and not others, we do know that there are animals that can be food and animals that cannot be food. As for a one-size-fits-all method of identification of this difference, there doesn't seem to be one. As we continue to read on this chapter, we discover that while these animals are unclean for food, it is in the latter part of the chapter that we discover how a person can contract uncleanness from these animals. And that is through the touching of the carcass of any of these unclean animals. The carcass of an unclean animal will cause a person to become unclean. And it's here that we see very clearly that uncleanness in an object or a person is transferable. In verse 32, when the carcass of an unclean animal touches an object, that object becomes unclean. This object is to be washed and it will be clean at sundown, just like any person. In verse 33, if it falls in an earthen vessel, then the vessel is to be destroyed. Now, this is likely due to the porous nature of an earthen vessel, which would hold on to whatever is put in it, regardless of how well it's cleansed. Any food that's in the vessel in which the carcass of an unclean animal touches also becomes unclean, even if the food never touched the carcass itself. This means that if a mouse is dead in your pot and you throw out the carcass and then simply wash the pot with water, but then don't wait until sundown to cook in the pot, then the food that's cooked in the pot is unclean, and if you eat of it, you are unclean until you wash and wait until sundown. The same thing goes for cooking surfaces, which in the ancient Near East were primarily made of earthen materials. These surfaces were to be broken if a dead, unclean animal touched it. Seed that has not touched water yet, it remains clean. But any seed that has begun the sprouting process by touching water, if it touches the dead animal, it then becomes unclean. But collections of water that have something die in them, they're not unclean. And in verse 39, we read something that might surprise us. If a clean animal dies on its own, its carcass is also unclean. Now we can assume that this does not apply to animals that have been slaughtered, but rather it applies to the clean animal that dies by being attacked by another animal or dies of disease or some unknown cause. 
Otherwise, the uncleanness of the animal carcass would have polluted the tabernacle during many of the sacrifices. So I'm pretty sure we can make that distinction. And then anyone who eats of this clean animal that died of natural causes also becomes unclean, and they must wash their body and their garments and wait until sundown before coming into the tabernacle. Now in verse 46, we encounter the sixth potential source of food from the animal kingdom. All swarming creatures are unclean. No ifs, ands, or buts. Now this raises the question again about the creeping creatures, because this was not how the part about the creeping creatures was approached. In the section on creeping creatures, there seems to be an allowance for some of them to be food. If only we knew what qualified as a creeping creature. Regardless, the swarming creatures, again, how do you identify a swarming creature as different from a creeping creature, as different from an insect? I mean, I would think that locusts would be a swarming creature, but then locusts are listed as clean among the insects. So my understanding of a swarming creature is obviously not appropriate. I only say all of this to point out what should be obvious to a modern audience. When it comes to creating a unified theory on what is edible and what is not according to Leviticus 11, there does not seem to be any clear-cut way of arriving at a satisfactory conclusion. One thing that's very interesting, though, in verse 46, is the fact that eating a swarming creature will not only make a person unclean, but eating of this category will cause a person to become defiled. And it's here that we discovered that this chapter does have something to say about that other scale of status that is holy and defiled. Eating a swarming creature will not simply make a person unclean. It will defile a person. It will remove any holiness that had been imparted to them and pervert it. And for the next two verses, we read that the people of God are to keep themselves holy. Why? Because they have been imparted with holiness because of their proximity to God. In both verse 44 and 45, we read that you shall be holy because I am holy, the I referring to Hashem. But when we understand that this is not talking about us doing something to make ourselves holy, then what is it saying? It is saying that we are holy. Why? Because He is holy. Our connection to Him is what imparts holiness, not any action that we take. It's never been about action. But because we are then in this holy state, there are now actions that should be taken and not taken in order to act in accordance with this holiness that has been imparted to us freely. And we'll get a lot more and a lot deeper into this in chapter 19. For now, this aside on holiness, it seems only to be addressing the matter of eating swarming creatures by making a big deal out of not eating swarming creatures. Because nestled between these two declarations that we are holy because of his holiness is yet another reminder that we should not defile ourselves with a swarming creature. And this is the Torah of what can be eaten and not eaten. And this listing is given for what purpose? So that we can make the distinction between the clean and the unclean. Something that the priests were charged with doing in the last chapter. Now, 
Anytime that it comes to food or Leviticus 11, it's expected that one such as myself, who still believes in the validity of the commands of the Torahs in our own lives, and as a teacher of the Bible, will then take an opportunity to go through the New Testament passages on the subject, and then break them down one by one to prove my case. Uh, frankly, I don't feel inclined to make a lengthy apologetic for why I believe the way I do. So I am going to go through some of those New Testament passages, but I'm simply going to hit some of the obvious passages and provide a framework for anyone who would like to go further into testing these ideas. So, for example, Mark 7, Matthew 15, the idea of washing hands is at play here. When Yeshua declares all meats clean, if you're reading the King James Version, he's not declaring all meats clean. Meat means food in Old English. He's not talking about animal protein in there. And the whole topic under discussion is, should you wash your hands before eating? And that if you don't wash your hands before eating, then you are making the food ritually unclean. In this passage, Yeshua is simply dispelling the superstition that clean food could be made unclean by simply touching them with dirty hands. That's not what's happening. He's dispelling this myth, this tradition of men that you had to wash your hands before you ate, or the food that you ate became, in essence, unclean or inedible. Now in Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision before visiting Cornelius, the Roman centurion. The vision that Peter has has nothing to do with food. Well, how do we know? Read the whole chapter. It's in the chapter. He says it clearly. Acts 10.28, Peter provides the interpretation of his vision. And he said to them, You know that a Jew is not allowed to associate with or to go into one of another race. This is the tradition, not a command from God. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. The same words that Peter used in the earlier part of the passage to defend himself in the realm of food, he now recognizes as something that is being applied to men. The vision is not a one-to-one comparison. It's not about eating unclean foods. It's about the tradition that had been built up that Gentiles were unclean and therefore unfit for Jews to go and to eat with. Some other passages, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, These two passages, they don't stand alone. They should be read together because they're covering the exact same topic. The issue being addressed is eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, not eating things that would not be considered food by Paul or by a Jew or by any Hebrew. If you read these chapters in conjunction, you'll get a better picture of the topic and Paul's solution to the topic. How do we know? Well, because the same language is used in both passages. The weaker brother who abstains from eating. We see this in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, 9, and 11, and then in Romans 14, verse 1 and 2. Paul declaring in 1 Corinthians 8, 13 that if need be, he'll never eat meat again, which is also then repeated in Romans 14, 2 etc. You can go through these passages yourself, compare them, and you'll see they're talking about the same thing. Paul's not saying in these, eat whatever you like. He's saying that clean foods that are found in the marketplace that have been sacrificed to idols are not inherently unclean. They're still food. Some choose to eat them because they cannot prove their source if they're found in the market. Others do not because of the same reason. 
they cannot determine their source. And Paul's saying here, in this argument, to each his own. But a concession should be made to accommodate the weaker brother. And I think that applies to more than just food. And in this passage, we find that the one who does not eat is the one who's called the weaker brother. So for those of you out there that choose to eat pork and shellfish and those things that Leviticus 11 declares unclean because you believe that God has changed his mind or has somehow made them clean, somehow brought the clean out of the unclean, then please consider us who eat clean as the weaker brothers and please accommodate us. It's on you to accommodate us, the weaker brothers who do not eat. I mean, if you're going to take this stance on how you interpret Paul in this way, then it's on you to accommodate us. It's not on us to accommodate you. Now, there are other passages that could be addressed, but there are plenty of other teachers out there that cover this topic in much greater detail. And you know how I dislike reinventing the wheel. So we're just going to continue on for now into chapter 12. Now, in chapter 12, we read of the uncleanness that's associated with giving birth. Now, there are several things going on in this chapter that were pertinent to the subject of uncleanness. First is the number of days of uncleanness for a woman after giving birth. For a male child, it's seven days of uncleanness. For a female child, it's 14 days. During this time, the woman is unclean completely. This uncleanness, then, is transferable to the things that she sat on and anyone that she touched. This is one of the reasons that the male child was not circumcised until the eighth day. For the first seven days, that child is unclean because of his proximity to his mother. On the eighth day, that first day of cleansing, the child would then be circumcised, and it was at this point that traditionally the child would be named. After this time frame of uncleanness, the woman enters a phase of cleansing. During this time, the woman is not considered unclean, but neither is she clean enough to enter into the tabernacle. She's in a state of cleansing that's moving her from unclean to clean. During this time, the woman was not allowed to approach anything holy. For the most part, this would be easy, as she could just simply stay away from the tabernacle, problem solved. But in the case of a wife of a priest, this could become an issue, for the woman could not eat of the sin and the guilt sacrifices that were the food for the priests of his family during this time. The sacrifices specifically were holy in chapter 7, and so the wife of a priest during these days of cleansing could not eat of the holy food. The Shlomim sacrifice, on the other hand, may or may not have been permissible for her to eat, because Leviticus 7 only says that the person who is unclean may not eat of it. But after the 7 or 14 days, the mother is no longer unclean. She's in cleansing. There's a distinction being made here for this case. Now, does this mean that she could eat of the sacrifices that are not specifically labeled holy? I don't know. And as we've seen before, frankly, it doesn't really matter right now because uncleanness is something that is dealt with in a completely different way at this time in history. And just as with the days of uncleanness, the days of cleansing, they're doubled for the female child over a male child. 40 days total for a male, 80 days total for a female. And with this, the question arises, why is there a difference between the times of cleansing depending on the sex of the child? And to this, people have proposed solutions over and over again, again, to my opinion, to no real avail. 
Some of the early church fathers suggested it was because females were less valuable than a male. And that's simply not the case. If this were true, there would be differing requirements for sacrifices to be brought when the time of cleansing was completed. The prescribed sacrifice doesn't make a distinction based on the sex of the child. So that's not because one is more valuable than the other. So why the difference? Well, another possibility is one that was proposed by Jewish sages was that the male child participated in the cleansing with his own blood at the time of his circumcision and that his addition of his own blood for cleansing then shortened the time of cleansing for the mother. Others stated that women bled more or longer with a female child. Now, that is something that is demonstrably falsifiable by science. Most who attempt to address this issue mention, either as their conclusion or in passing on the way to their conclusion, that this is one of those places where we can only guess at, and so the truth lies with the lawgiver, and it's not for us to know with absolute surety. So, in the end, everything that you can find on this situation, simply a guess. And when it comes to this, your guess is just as good as anyone else's, I suppose. When the days of cleansing were completed, there were two offerings to be made. One, an Ola offering, an offering of recognizing how awesome God is, the one who gives and the one who takes away. He's given you a child. Give him something in return. The second is a sin offering. And it's this that has confused so many because the woman didn't commit a sin, but she still had a sin offering. But as we've discussed before, sin offerings don't apply only when someone commits a sin. Leviticus 8, 14 through 15. And he brought the bull for his sin offering. Aaron and his sons, they laid their hands on the head of the bull for the sin offering, and it was slain. And Moshe took the blood and put some on the horns of the altar all around with his finger, and he sinned the altar, and he poured the blood at the base of the altar and set it apart to make atonement for it. The sin offering cleanses the holy spaces of human uncleanness. And in chapter 4, we learn that the sin offering also makes atonement for the person who brought it. Leviticus 4.35 It removes all of its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the fire offerings to Hashem. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has sinned, and it shall be forgiven him. And we see this repeated all throughout these sections on this sin sacrifice. We see here very clearly the connection is between human nature, sin, and uncleanness. For it's impossible for a person to go through life without becoming unclean. Everyone becomes unclean. Everyone is born in uncleanness. It's unescapable. And this natural uncleanness is offensive to God. And so it has to be purged before we come into his physical presence. But we can't come into his physical presence at this time in history. Not in the same way that Israel did at the times of the tabernacle and the temple. So why does this matter at all, that question that keeps coming up when we reach this section of the Torah? Well, it's because it reveals the root issue of what separates us from God. Death. If we compile the times and the places that uncleanness is referred to in Scripture, we would discover that every time that a person can contract uncleanness, it is because we've associated with death in some way way. But what about birth, you say? Birth is life. Birth isn't death. 
Well, if we turn back to Genesis 3, we find that the current circumstances of birth are a direct result of the fall. And the curse of the fall was death. Genesis 3.16 To the woman he said, I greatly increase your sorrow and your conception, bringing forth children in pain, and your desire is for your husband, and he does rule over you. The current manner of birth is directly connected to the curse of the fall and to death. And in the ancient world, this was widely recognized. Death of the mother during childbirth was extremely common. Death of the child during or even after childbirth was extremely common. Birth was always a time of trepidation. Would they live and it be a joyous occasion? Or will one and or both die and the time of joy become a time of mourning? Regardless, we see in both of these chapters the beginning of defining and understanding uncleanness and what underlies it. We begin to catch a glimpse of the spirit of the law of uncleanness that I spoke of last week. Becoming unclean in chapter 11 is directly connected to touching the dead animals that are called unclean. Becoming unclean in chapter 12 is directly connected to the curse of the fall. And through this, we can understand that it was the fall that created this possibility for uncleanness to exist at all. Because we are creatures of death. Our world is filled with death. But our God is a God of life. And so we have a problem. For a God of life and a people of death to be together in relationship, that death that clings to us must be cleansed away, if only for a time. And that was the purpose of the sin sacrifice. It cleansed the holy things of the death that we carry within us. But with Yeshua, the death that clings to us in our spirit, it's, it's dealt with. Now we still have bodies of death. We are alive in Messiah, but our flesh is still a flesh of death. But without a physical presence of Hashem in our midst in a tabernacle or temple, uncleanness ceases to matter all that much. Because God is working. He has a plan to reunite humanity to himself as it was intended to be. And that plan, it's being carried out in the world even today. For Hashem, God the Father, will one day dwell with us on earth once again. But there's something that must occur before that can happen. We read of it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 26. For since death is through a man, resurrection of the dead is also through a man. For as all men die in Adam, so all shall be made alive in Messiah. And each in his own order, Messiah the firstfruits, then those who are of Messiah at his coming. Then the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to nothing all rule and all authority and all power. For he has to reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be brought to nothing is death. The kingdom of this earth will be handed over to the Father by the Messiah in the end, after all dominion and authorities have been conquered. And the final enemy, that final enemy of mankind to be defeated before the Father, will assume his throne here on earth once again? Death. Death is the final enemy to be defeated by Messiah. And through his resurrection, we know that death can and has been defeated. He's done it once. 
He'll do it again for the rest of us at his return. And then, once and for all, for all of the rest of eternity future, death will be defeated for good. And in that moment, new creation will occur on earth. And the new creation that we read of is one that's characterized by a lack of death. Revelation 21 verse 4. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former matters have passed away. The new beginning for all creation, a world without death. In fact, a world without uncleanness. Revelation 21 verse 27, And there shall by no means enter into it whatever is unclean, neither anyone doing abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is the lesson that we can learn from uncleanness for today. Uncleanness teaches us about our own natural separation from God. He is all life. We are infused with death. And that separation is a gulf that can only be crossed by the blood of a sacrifice. Our sacrifice being the one true sacrifice of Yeshua, the one who defeated death and who gives life to all who believe. And so part of this process of Derashchai should be to recognize this, to recognize the food for what it is. It's a mechanism that supports our lives, to recognize the death that's in our flesh, and to recognize that it is this more than anything else that separates us. From God. So Derish Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare high, as we seek life. Shalom.